Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I are delighted to be joined by Pim Van Vliet, head of quant equity at Rubico, where he and his team manage billions of dollars through quantitative investing strategies. Pim is author of the book, High Returns from Low Risk, A Remarkable Stock Market Paradox, and offers research through his website, paradoxinvesting.com. Our discussion with Pim focuses on low volatility and conservative stock investing, from why it works over time to some simple criteria investors can use to find stocks that would be considered attractive, low volatility names, and much more. I think investors looking to invest in stocks, but also thinking about ways to manage risk, will learn a great deal from this conversation. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Pim Van Vliet. Hi, Tim. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, Justin. Great. Thanks uh, for having me. I'm uh, excited. Yeah, we're excited uh, to have you on too. Um, your book, uh, High Returns from Low Risk, The Remarkable Stock Market Paradox, is actually the inspiration for one of the models that we emulate on Validia. And that's obviously with other big name, very successful investors, people like Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch. So we don't often get a chance to talk to um, those investors that have uh, written strategies and and published strategies that we've captured on Validia. So we're we're certainly excited to um, have you on the podcast and have a good discussion around quantitative uh, investing and the strategies that you've developed. Um, I also think it's it's an imp- probably a really good time to be talking about your type of style of quantitative investing. Just given I think where um, the markets are today, I think there's a lot of uncertainty around a lot of things. Um, higher interest rates, higher inflation, obviously the you know, most markets are down in bear market territory. So this idea of low volatility and conservative stock investing, I think is one that is important to talk about now. And I think it's going to resonate with a lot of investors. Fully agree, uh, Justin. So risk matters a lot. And in the past decades, it was a bit more, more to the background. But if you reduce your risk and your drawdowns, that's really healthy for long-term uh, capital growth. Yes. To start, we wanted to ask you, how did you begin investigating, investing in low volatility stocks? How did that original idea come to you? Yeah, it, it started as a boy when I was a teenager. I started investing and then I was drawn to high volatile stocks because they were fluctuating. I was uh, investing in a mutual fund uh, consisting of bonds and it was just too boring for me. Uh, this personal story to that, uh, that that's basically the beginning. Then at Academia, I, uh, I found some papers like the seminal paper by Eugene Fama, uh, French 92. So not their three-factor model paper, but the one before that, where they basically show that beta is not priced in the cross-section. So the risk-return relation is flat. So I studied that during my uh, undergrad. And I was fascinated. Uh, fascin- it was fascinating. I was like, hey, low, low beta, low full stocks give uh, similar or better returns than the market. And that's a huge anomaly, uh, something which strikes at the heart of finance, the heart of CAPM. That was the moment when it, it uh, kicked in and uh, puzzled me. And ever since, it has been still puzzling me now more than 20 years uh, later. Well, I mean, that is the, that is the, the, the question, which is, you know, this idea of 
you get compensated for taking higher risk in the markets um, over time. But the idea that I think you uncovered that you can actually get better returns by investing in these lower volatility stocks. Um, uh, why do you, do you, I mean, do you have any, like you said, you're still puzzled by this, but you know, do you have any theories or ideas as to why that might be, what the drivers of that might be? Yeah, so the puzzle has become uh, more clear to me now. So, uh, but it's still, uh, yeah, a, a sort of inconvenient truth for finance. The interesting thing is you mentioned this impressive list of famous investors who look at quality and value. And the reason I wrote the book was also to stress the risk element of stocks. When people do their discounted cash flow analysis, do company valuations, they always look at growth and you know, mode and profitability and those kind of things, but they hardly take risk into account because it's so ambiguous. Risk is also um, an, an opportunity, eh? risk is two-sided. So when you have skill, uh, you like risk. That was when I was a kid as well. So it has to do with biases, so human biases. We tend to be overconfident because if you're not overconfident, you buy the index. So any any active investor, should be overconfident and thinks he or she can beat the market. Because bottom up, it doesn't add up. All alphas is, are a zero sum game. Now, the, the thing with risk is therefore a tricky one that high risky stocks give an opportunity to many investors. So if you think you have skill, you go to that part of the market. So that's one reason, uh, overconfidence, because on on average, we cannot all be above average. Some are below, some are above. The, the second thing is we have constraints. Some people uh, uh, yeah, don't, can, cannot use leverage. So then uh, when you have a high conviction on a stock, you go to a more high volatile stock. So most of the stories tend to draw you to high volatility stocks. The, and even institutional investors uh, who have benchmarks are drawn towards more the high beta, uh, uh, more volatile stocks, with stocks with more idiosyncratic volatility, because that can make your career. Um, so everything together, we see so many rational reasons, uh, but also behavioral reasons why investors move to the high vol part of the market, uh, the exciting part, and simply going against that uh, and simply buying low vol stocks. Yeah, that seems not to be such a good idea because it's such a a rational uh, long-term thing to do it's uh, it's not easy so that's why we think it works because it's so uh, counterintuitive it goes against uh, all kinds of incentives and uh, yeah so th that's that's an important reason why it works it's funny because what you mentioned at the beginning about how you got into low volatility investing is sort of the same lesson i've learned in my career which is all of us tend to go to these highly volatile stocks until we realize it's a, it's a horrible idea and then eventually we start looking for solutions on, you know, on the other side of it. And, you know, so, so my career is kind of similar to yours in that, like I played around with those stocks. It didn't go very well. Um, you know, now I've kind of gone with different approaches. That's a bit the same with the lottery. Uh, if you, if you want to win a million dollar on the lottery, you should, if you buy one lottery ticket, you can get a millionaire. Right? That's the same with stocks who are volatile. But if you buy all lottery stocks, you certainly win the, the jackpot. But you will also certainly lose money. That's the same with high vol stocks. Of course, some of them will will give you big, big returns. Some of them, but if you buy all of them, and that's why my research on. So it's not about one or two high vol stocks. It's about buying all of them. That's not a good idea. 
and it's better to take uh, leave them out and go more to the beta one and below uh, part of the market in the long run. Yeah, as an aside on that, you know, that, that's one of the things I've always found interesting, like about growth investing in general is, you know, this idea that on average, they underperform, but, you know, the best performers come from in there. And I've always wondered, and I was wondering if you have any thoughts on just like, do you think those of us who are quant investors will ever be able to figure something out there to maybe try to pull those best stocks out of there? I mean, do you think that's a, something for quants or do you think that's something discretionary investors will always do better? I think both. So first of all, this is the, the skew pattern in the cross section. So you have a positive skew with high volatile and growth stocks and that you might have this lottery ticket, which is an extreme good payoff. And that's why you're drawn to it. And if you add a little bit of overconfidence, you, you're basically thinking you can, you can pick this one out. Um, yeah, where the quants can do it, um, momentum of, of all the factors is certainly uh, putting you more in that direction. Uh, because when something really gets going, people sometimes underreact to this to to this new Amazon. Uh, they, uh, so momentum is the way. If if you take any quant tool, the way to catch those uh, positive skew uh, uh, exceptions, basically. Yeah. Going back to low volatility, I was watching a video you did on YouTube in preparation for this, and one of the things I noticed is you had a chart in there, and you sort of showed return as volatility rises, and it seemed like initially return did go up a little bit with volatility, and then it just tanked. And I'm wondering if you can explain why why you think that happens. Yeah, so the the tanking we I can explain. So uh, that's why that's because this is really overbought, and uh, there are many many reasons why people move into that uh, highest volatile part of the market. Yeah, that is in the beginning slightly going up. I, I'm not sure whether that's significant. I, we basically say it's flat. Uh, so. Um, the, the most important point is it's flat and then it's falling off a cliff. And the reason that it's flat is also why we think uh, you shouldn't go for minimum variance or minimum volatility. You should basically uh, stay more in the low in the low side of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that sort of gets to my, to my next question, which is I want to ask you about how you measure low volatility. You know, in your work, you use standard deviation to measure volatility, but some other people might use data. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the pros and cons of the, sort of those two different approaches. Yeah, so in the academic papers I, I publish, it's uh, total return volatility, so standard deviation, just for simplicity reasons. If you have to pick one, it's it's good. Uh, in my book, I also write that you can use beta because for retail investors using screeners, beta is simple. If it's below one, it's good. Uh, that's sort of a, a nice metric. Well, volatility is varying it can uh, it's usually 20 25 percent but sometimes it's 30 or you know it's diff more difficult to to grasp the beauty about volatility is that it's it's very strong but the beauty about beta it contains correlations as well so that a low beta stock uh, might be high vol but then it contributes to a lower portfolio volatility so ideally we believe i believe you should have both of them so both volatility and beta I just published a month ago a paper uh, called Shrinking Beta, Beta Shrinkage in the Journal of Risk, in which we basically say a mix of them is, uh, is optimal. So a mix of more longer term uh, volatilities, but also uh, using correlations, shrink that it's a bit technical, but you shrink uh, the correlations more than the volatilities because correlations are less stable. That's why we sh say we should be cautious with correlations, so not too much. But some correlation is helpful, and then a mix of them, beta and vol, is superior to either beta or vol. So if you can use both, use both, and make sure you don't give too much weight to beta, but give roughly half-half weight uh, to that. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's something I found in factor investing in general. It's, it tend, it, composites tend to work pretty well in a lot of cases, maybe not in every case, but in most cases, composites seem to work pretty well. Yeah, in the, that's a general thing. Uh, and if there's an economic rationale to it, so why why you should do it? Usually it's a multidimensional angle uh, with correlations also containing information. If there's a story and it adds value, then usually it's good to uh, to blend them together. Yeah. I want to ask you about the sector composition of sort of alongside of the low volatility universe, because it, it gets sort of a reputation that it's, you know, just a bunch of utility stocks and consumer staples. And so is, is that true? And does it change over time, sort of the composition of that long low volatility basket? Yeah, so you tend to end up in more defensive sectors in which a defensive sector can become cyclical and the other way around, right? like telecom uh, was defensive, then became more uh, cyclical in the early 2000s and then becoming defensive again. But you also see uh, tech stocks coming up from low vol screens. So you see a low vol approach uh, having some t sector tails. But the funny thing is, if you put hard sector constraints on a low vol strategy, so you force it to be sector neutral, it also works because low vol works within every sector. Uh, the best application is to have some sector rotation available so that you have bottom-up uh, sector rotation, but also uh, make sure that it's well diversified across industries. Yeah. Do you find that to be true with most factors? Like, you know, value is one where people talk about that idea a lot. You know, people like AQR will, you know, follow sector neutral value strategies where other people will say, well, if financials are cheap, I'm going in hard on financials. How do you find with other factors that idea of how it works, that idea of sector concentration? Yeah, it is about uh, the relative risk tolerance. So how much uh, deviation from a market can you uh, handle as a client? So tracking error is a very funny concept. Huh? So tracking error, when I did my PhD in downside risk, I didn't work with tracking error. Uh, that's funny because low beta stocks, low vol stocks have high tracking error. So the reason why you would put your uh, sector constraints low is because it generates tracking error. Uh, you deviate from the benchmark and there's not so much compensation coming from that. So if you have a more a relative return objective, like with value and momentum strategies, it's, it usually makes sense to cut down your allocation positions and limit your tracking error because then your information ratio goes up. Now the beauty with the low vol approach is that your tracking error is high anyhow, no matter whether you have sector constraints or not, it is high or high. So in that sense, uh, Usually, uh, you can be a bit more tolerant on uh, on uh, sector constraints. So, in the in the book I wrote, it's pretty plain and straightforward. There are no sector constraints. Uh, if you add some light constraints, about ten percent, you slightly get better results because uh, yeah, your the stability of your performance goes up somewhat. Yeah. Yeah, what you're talking about is probably one of the biggest lessons of my career. You know, when I was running these strategies in a vacuum, I didn't care about tracking error, and then you start putting clients in the strategies. And then suddenly you have to worry about it because you know not not everybody's me who can stay the course through everything. So it's like this this balance between tracking error and trying to you know get the best returns you can for the premiums is a is a challenge I think all of us face on a day to day basis. Yeah, the funny thing, Jack, is the the term itself it's an error. So I joined uh, the industry after my PhD, and then people talked about errors, and I was like, what kind of mistake uh, are we making? It's it's funny, right? It's very normative. While yeah, there's good tracking error and bad tracking error, right? if you outperform. It's good, especially if it's in a down market. So with the low vol, the tracking error from low vol is basically good tracking error because you outperform in a bear market. Now that's good. And you underperform in a, in a bull market. Uh, that's uh, you give away upside. You still make money. 
so that's funny uh, about this concept of uh, tracking error. Yeah. Just just one concept on uh, the sectors. I I it was and this was a couple of years ago. It might have been almost a decade ago. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. It was actually on Jim O'Shaughnessy's blog. He put out a, um, it was like a mini like research study, but it was a, the best performing sector. And at the time of the publication, this goes back I think to the 1950s. Uh, their data set went back, and it was the consumer staples sector. And they were. And, and, you know, when I, when I think of, when I see at least your strategy, the way we implement it, you know, a lot of consumer staples certainly pop up in there. Um, at least they have historically. And so I just, so I, I always found that interesting. And they sort of tried to ask the question, like, why do these consumer staples outperform? And they, I think they were like looking at, you know, the businesses had protective moats. It's hard to become a consumer staples. They have pricing power. So there was some reasons that they, um, you know, that they theorized around why, why consumer staples was the best performing sector. And, um, you know, those stocks do tend to, do you find that they pop up in your U.S. strategies and other strategies you run around the world? Yeah. So you see, if you do no, no constraints and low vol only, a single strategy, no constraints, then uh, you get more of a tilt to uh, consumer staples. Yeah. And there are, yeah, basically also more boring. Eh? So the number of analysts on staples and utilities is, is just lower than on more the tech stocks. Uh, that's also an interesting signal. Um, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about the strategy from the book because it's a really interesting strategy. You know, you start with low volatility, but you also blend it with some other factors. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about what factors are in the strategy and maybe why you selected them. Yeah, that's a good one. So. Uh, Low vol and low beta, low risk is an important factor. And that's basically my career. A big part of my contributions has been on this, that quants and investors in general should look at risk. But then the point is it doesn't stop there because um, if you only focus on risk and risk reduction, you cannot eat it. Uh, it doesn't give outperformance, uh, maybe similar or slight outperformance. So standalone, it is uh, difficult to catch and uh, also, um, but still very important. It's like a solid foundation. If you stop there, you get things like uh, sector uh, allocations more to defensive sectors. So it's good, but there are some problems with a plain local approach. Now the beauty about including other factors. So in the screen, we use momentum and uh, income uh, yield. So payout yield, the beauty about Adding those is, is a couple of reasons. First, your return goes up, your absolute return significantly. But the second thing is that also your tracking error also goes down. So the stability of your outperformance uh, really improves. And that makes it, imp that's very important that you get capital growth uh, and capital protection. That's the twin desire of any investor. And it has become a bit less uh, at the forefront. Uh, but yeah, going forward, like you said, uh, just in start, uh, this is going to be very important. Because, for example, why we love moment, why I like momentum a lot is momentum plays the underreaction uh, theme. Momentum standalone is very difficult to arbitrage because it's such a high turnover strategy. But it's beautiful to blend into a low vol approach, because especially combined with uh, value like income, these are antagonists, so they are negatively correlated. So you can blend them in very easily in a defensive approach. It goes very natural. And what we see is that uh, the conservative formula is, is clearly much, much better than a plain level approach. It is um, giving higher alpha, higher sharp, lower tracking error, higher information ratio. And also uh, what you mentioned in the beginning, better inflation protection, because low vol itself is already 
pretty decent in that, but especially with these additional screens uh, with momentum, uh, you get much better uh, inflation protection with the formula. Now, besides the book, we also wrote an, uh, a study in the Journal of Portfolio Management where we drilled much deeper into the formula and also relating it to uh, all, all kinds of robustness tests, checking it outside the US. So it also works in uh, emerging markets. It's very robust. Uh, also in, in Europe, in Japan, uh, transaction cost analysis. So we really uh, grill and drill uh, on the formula where we can shoot holes in it. And in all cases, we see that adding value and momentum together really makes the strategy better. That in some markets, uh, value might be a bit better, like in, uh, in uh, China. In other markets, momentum is a bit better, like in India. But overall, if you combine both, you have a very robust formula, which works uh, robustly yeah, everywhere, you could say. Why did you choose a net pay, payout yield over, you know, you could have used some of the other standard value strategies. And I'm just wondering what, what it is about net payout yield that works really well. Yeah, so the, the reason, uh, and we had to pick one, uh, like we said, a blend is often better, but in the formula, we kept it simple. And then you have to think of one. Uh, the beauty about it is that you combine dividends uh, as income and you combine it also with uh, share issuance, um, but also share buybacks. So that you get a total yield. Uh, the other thing is it's cash-based, uh, which is given back to shareholders. So you can also see there's a governance signal it's quality, it's income, it is also value because it's a yield. So if the price is low, you also get better, better yields. So it's basically one simple metric, which is not based on accounting standards. That's also a reason why we include it, no accounting standards. So you can backtest it prior to CompuStat uh, era. You can also back compare stocks across uh, jurisdictions and different uh, accounting regimes. So that's why we like it. It's like a value income quality kind of measure, uh, which also is a bit more defensive uh, compared to simple uh, like PE ratio or something, which is not uh, less directly comparable and uh, is uh, less defensive than, uh, than payout and, uh, and income together. Yeah. But that is the one thing about the strategy. It's, it's actually a very simple, straightforward, at least the one in the book. And you kind of highlighted the fact that you know, an investor trying to implement this wouldn't need to go to the financial statements. You know, they could actually do it using, I mean, whatever, the Wall Street Journal. Almost. I mean, you can't, you can't necessarily screen it, but you can get the data points without going to the financial statements and making it overly complicated. That's the beauty. It's simple. Uh, also, the quantitative investing made simple. And you can even go back to journals in the 19th century, which we did. So we opened this uh, historical database uh, in which we got uh, market price info. And yes, we could implement the formula back then. Uh, and guess what? It also works back then. So you can test the conservative formula because it's so simple on any uh, uh, stock return universe. And the interesting thing is that it also captures more complex uh, uh, factor models. So the, the, that's what we do in our academic paper. So in the factor community. It's now a zoo. Eh? Some people say they're 50, they're 100, they're 200. Some of them are very complex. Some of them rely on really uh, sophisticated data. And you now have got the five factor, six factor, seven factor models of farmer friends and base and, uh, and others. And what we show is that if you take this simple formula, you get exposure to all the complex factor premiums. So we turn it around instead of can all kinds of factor models explain the formula. 
we can we can say with this formula you get access to all those kind of complex uh, factor premiums which are out there without using uh, yeah accounting data uh, so very simple and straightforward you use the largest 1,000 stocks as your universe for this. And I'm just wondering, have you looked at this in smaller cap stocks? I mean, is this something you'd expect to work in smaller cap stocks as well? Yeah, we tested it as well outside small caps in the paper. And uh, it works even somewhat stronger in small caps. Yeah. So we did the 1,000 just, again, for practical purposes. Because many market anomalies and uh, studies are based on uh, small cap uh, effects. Yeah? So that's also famous in academia, that if you screen out the small caps, many uh, high factor premiums disappear. We show that this formula works very strong also for large stocks. So that's important, but it of course works as good and much better even in small caps. Just out of curiosity, when you look at sort of the top decile of low volatility in general, I mean, I, I would think that small caps or large caps would be overrepresented in, in that decile. Is, is that true? I mean, are there many more you know, large caps in that universe than, than smaller cap stocks? Yeah, if you sim simply screen on uh, on volatility, yes. Yeah. So also relating to your question on beta. So if you blend it with beta, you also get more small caps uh, in it. And uh, the other one, if you blend in uh, uh, share uh, the yields with uh, momentum, you also get less of a large cap tilt. Yeah. So that's why yeah, I don't propose single factor low vol investing. I think it's good. But uh, that's why we propose the formula and also the strategies I manage. We do it much more, uh, uh, how do say it, multi-factor and um, blend across small caps and large caps. This sort of get back, gets back to something you talked about before with using you know multiple uh, factors with, with low volatility. But I, I was listening to a podcast a while back that Larry Sledger did. And he was talking about this idea that you know if you look at the excess return from low volatility stocks, pretty much all of it comes during periods when they're also cheap. And I'm wondering if you've looked at that, and, you know, do you think that's true? Yeah, that's another reason why you should watch out with single low vol strategies. So single factor. So only looking at risk without anything else. If you buy a car, you look at the price. So that's why we say if you do a low vol strategy, look at the price. So include valuation, a valuation metric. So in the so we did a test and where we can, I can confirm the finding of Larry Svetro. So most of the alpha comes from periods when low vol is cheap. But if you then take the formula, which we just discussed, which includes valuation as a screener, a yield, you always make uh, always make money. And also when periods when low vol is expensive, because then you buy uh, low vol stocks, which are not expensive. Uh, so includes, uh, uh, watch the price. So yes, very good point by Larry. Just a couple of for me before I hand it back to Justin, I want to switch out low volatility and ask you about some of the other factors. Um, you know, one of the things I remember early in my career is there was pretty much consensus that there is a size premium. And now the consensus seems to be switching the other way that a size premium doesn't really exist. And I'm wondering if I just, we could get your thoughts on that, the idea of the size premium and whether it exists. Yeah, it's a good one. So it's an academic debate whether it exists or not. So it has become smaller also because the database has become cleaner. So CRISP uh, in the eighties was less cl clean than CRISP nowadays. So if you take exactly the same farmer French study and now use the clean database, so the same sample period, the size premium becomes smaller. That's that's pretty funny. I think there is some size premium, uh, mostly related to their higher beta. Um, what I especially think is that small caps give you exposure uh, to other factors because there are only a few mega caps and many, many thousands of small caps. 
And small caps are very uh, broad. Some are low vol, some are high vol, some are cheap, some are expensive. So they give you an enormous opportunity to get factors, uh, your factor exposure. And so the conservative formula works better for 1,000 stocks than for uh, 100 stocks. And it also works better for 5,000 stocks than for 1,000 stocks. So your previous question. So size is sort of a byproduct of having a very broad uh, investment universe with lots of breadth to capture uh, premiums. Now then on the size premiums, I would say it's it's small. Also in our uh, uh, in our historical study, the, the size cap, the size premium is small in the 19th century. So again, casting doubts on the size. There's only one critical note from my side is that uh, size did pretty poor in the past decade. And what strikes me is that if premium is poor in a certain decade, then after this decade, people start to wonder wh whether the premium still exists. And that makes me a little bit contrarian for the next decade, that the more people doubt uh, the existence of a premium, uh, the contrarian guy in, my, in me says now maybe it is uh, somewhat positive. But the data, the academic consensus seems to be it's small and it's at, at, at the verge of uh, significance. Yeah, you know, one of the things I've always told investors when they ask about this is, you know, I don't think any of us are just going to buy stocks because they're small, but the other factors tend to work better. I think, you know, first of all, they tend to work better in small cap stocks, but also like, like you mentioned, you know, if you're going to look for anything in this world, like you want to look in the largest universe possible because you have a better chance to find it. So looking at sort of a universe that includes small cap stocks, gives you a better chance to find what you're looking for, you know, with any of the other factors. That's it. And if you're then long only constraints, uh, then you get a, a small cap tilt. So many of the quant strategies have uh, as a byproduct uh, a, a tilt towards uh, small caps. But if you wouldn't be uh, long only constraints, you would be short, shorting. You would also short lots of small caps, uh, of course. Yeah. So you, you talk about this idea that when something doesn't work for a long period of time, people abandon it. And so that, that gets me to my next question, which is this idea of value. And, you know, value has done better recently, but there was a pretty bad decade there for value. And you know, you had a lot of people questioning value for a lot of different reasons. You know, they said maybe too many people are following value or maybe technology has messed up value, you know, because technology stocks are just producing these excess returns and they're underrepresented in value portfolios. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that whole decade were. Was there anything in there that made you question, you know, whether the value premium exists or whether it's smaller, or do you think that's just one of these other under, long underperforming periods we've seen in the history of value? Yeah, so value is a return factor. Uh, so it offers a positive premium if you systematically buy cheap stocks and, and do not buy expensive stocks. I think the evidence is very clear on that. Um, the last decade in the US, uh, it was weak. But if you assume a premium of 3%, a sharp of 0.3, then by definition, you will have decades where uh, you don't have return. The same goes with equities, by the way. The equity premium can disappear for the next decade. The question is after then 10 years, people say, hey, is there an equity premium? Uh, but they will ask this after uh, a decade with very low equity returns. So I, d I doubt the equity premium, for example. Will it be around for the next 10 years? I don't know because historically it's a sharp of 0.3. The last decade it was one. So there was high returns, low risk. I'm, I'm not so sure. But do I believe in the equity premium? For sure. Do I know whether it's going to work for the next 10 years? I don't know. So that's the same with value. So I believe in its existence, but it can mean that you don't see it for uh, a long period. Now what helps is I'm uh, based in the Netherlands. So uh, uh, Rotterdam uh, worked for an asset manager with 90 year plus experience, international investing. So value worked pretty well outside the US. So in the US, the value winter was bigger, coldest and longest. 
So that also helps that we solve value to do uh, behave differently outside the US. Um, yeah, of course, we gave this uh, value uh, performance lots of thoughts. The most fundamental one is what happened with the fundamentals. Uh, uh, we saw some exceptions of some growth stocks really improving on their fundamentals, uh, really making money, uh, delivering on their growth, which was exceptionally. But also, if you then look at the multiple expansion and, and contraction of value versus growth, you see it was all sentiment uh, driven. So fundamentals change. So you do have some growth uh, stocks, which clearly delivered, but there were also value stocks who delivered. So that cancels out. Uh, so it was purely this multiple contraction and multiple expansion of these different segments. And then you create facts on the ground. So if growth outperforms for five years, uh, you get narrative, you get stories. And that's a sort of a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy and a self-containing narrative structure. Uh, so yeah, value is important. And besides uh, how I look at value is not only as a return factor, but also as a risk control. You don't hear that much. But if you look at expensive stocks, the tricky trick is with uh, expensive stocks. I prefer that term over growth stocks because that's the academic definition. The end, if you have cheap, which is value, expensive uh, is the other side. The problem with uh, if you're anti-value, you get uh, lots of risk of bubbles deflating. So you've got more a balloon who can uh, sort of uh, plop like 87. You've got a stock crash, short one, uh, like uh, with March 2000. 2020. But if you have big bubbles bursting, and you see that historically, then uh, value stocks offer protection. And I think that's also important. And you might see this coming in the next uh, five years, that uh, value stocks will offer more protection because uh, they have tangibles, they have something touchable in inflation, and they can reduce your drawdown. So that's why in the formula, we also have uh, value um, uh, insight, not only for return, but also to reduce risk and especially bubble uh, deflating risk. Yeah, you know, to your point, I mean, people have seen it, you know, in the last couple of years since 2021, you know, I was looking at like the top decile of the most expensive stocks in our universe using the value composite and it's been completely destroyed since the beginning of 2021. I mean, there, there's been a massive, massive drawdown in those types of stocks. And the, the funny thing with value growth is this very slow cycle. If you look at the cycles uh, also through time over the past 10, uh, yeah, 10 is just one cycle, but the cycles have become really short, uh, long. And uh, that means that investors also have time to, to move uh, between styles. Yeah. Just one more for me before I hand it back to Justin. I want to ask you specifically about the price to book, because you know, a lot of people that are critical of the value tend to focus on that. And you know, if you look at the academic research, it's probably the most represented factor. If you look at sort of the standard value ETFs out there, it's probably the primary factor on more than any other factor. So it does seem to be the most used factor, but people make the point that, you know, in a world that's dominated by intangible assets, you know, the price to book may not make any sense anymore. You know, like Google's price to book may not tell me very much about Google. And I'm, I'm wondering your, what, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think the price to book still has a place as a value factor? Yeah, so I look at this um, more, when I step back and look at the market and market pundits and how stories are told and narratives appear. Two years ago, I, I was wanting to write a piece on book, uh, price to book because it was the favorite variable which was kicked around and trashed and disliked, especially what you say, Jack, about tangibles. And, and if personally, I was even 
this was strengthening my conviction on of book to price. Now I do see that book to price can be improved. Uh, so it's very plain and simple. You can enhance it. Uh, for example, taking also uh, efficiencies into account when it comes to uh, uh, carbon. So you can enhance it and you can add intangibles to it. So yes, a book to price is too simplistic and you should and could enhance it. However, still on the bottom, it's interesting that this variable uh, is very interesting from correlation perspective. It adds value because it's a level besides flow variable. So like cash flows and uh, earnings or flows and book to price is a different angle. So it's always good to have in a blend. Taking a step back, uh, so book to price was really uh, yeah, the, the favorite uh, variable to dislike for a couple of years. What you now hear coming uh, a little bit is a different narrative where people say, hey, uh, we're now going back to an, there's war in Europe, there's scarcity of materials, uh, second-hand cars are going up in price. So we're moving back to a tangible economy. And if you have a company which has lots of uh, stuff on their book uh, and on their asset seat, they have maybe uh, ground or they have factories or maybe a car fleet, maybe you want <laughs> companies with a high book. You see what I mean? In a, if the narrative, if, if we move to uh, this tangible uh, world and you've got crowding out, so you need a car maybe, and maybe you uh, skip on your IT uh, services. Yeah? So in the next coming years, it could be that uh, the book to price might be the surprise variable, but I don't know. But I do know when book to price will do very well in a sort of stagflation environment, this will be the narrative being told about why book to price is such a great variable. Uh, so I'm just trying to paint a different narrative besides the story about uh, the intangible economy and blah, blah. I can also have a tangible economy story. In some, I would say, uh, have it in uh, and don't put everything on it. So uh, enhance it, have it in, and uh, also blend it with, with other uh, value factors. Yeah. So don't give up on uh, book to price. Yeah. yeah, to your point, one of the things I've found in my career is when, when a factor becomes the absolute most hated, that's usually the time where you've got a pretty good decade coming. So if, even though you can make the argument on the other side, you might see a pretty good decade from price to book here. Uh-huh. Uh, that's why I also ask around, uh, do you believe, in, uh, if people ask me two years ago, uh, value was really down. And then they ask me, what do you think about the value premium? I said, yeah, I believe in the value premium. Also the risk story, which I just told. But then I, uh, when I reverse it, do you believe in the equity premium? And then people were looking at me, what, what kind of question are you asking me? That's funny. Like uh, if a question, so the opposite is also true. If a, val is a premium is, is not questioned, you can also be a bit critical. We wanted to uh, ask the last few questions around some of the content, some of the research you guys have been putting out. I mean, you guys are pretty forward-leaning, I think, with the, the research and, and, and being out there, um, you know, the, the, both the studies and the actual hardcore research you're doing, but then, you know, sort of these articles that are dige dige digestible for, you know, professional investors and people interested in quantitative investing. So the first one was, and I think this was a paper in July, um, the, the title of the paper was Inve Investing in Deflation, Inflation, and Stags regimes. Um, and you looked at different asset classes and factor premiums during different inflationary environments. So I was just wondering if you could talk about what you found in that paper, just, and, you know, and kind of correlated to what we're seeing today in the market. Yeah. So for that purpose, uh, we want to look at stagflation, inflation. We see many papers now appearing on inflation and stagflation on the 70s, which is like yeah, one observation, you could say. So we used our really long-term database going uh, 150 plus years that you have more observations on regimes. 
So that's one. And then uh, we basically confirmed how bad stagflation is for equity investors. It's terrible. So in a nominal sense, it's it's not good. But in a real sense, it's really bad. So money illusion plays a big role. So also this year, like the S&P is down, I don't know, minus 15 or something. But if the inflation is 10%, you're down 25%. Uh, that's the money illusion. So it's really bad. It's really bad. And uh, So that's finding one of the study. Maybe obvious, but still important to stress. If you combine it with stagflation, so not only high inflation, but also recession, it gets even worse. Now, then we find that, uh, yeah, good old factors, um, which drive markets as well. So there are premiums, so the value premium, momentum premium. So we tested them, uh, the, the low volatility premium. Now, if you take such an approach, the good news is that uh, they all add value across these regimes. So also in those bad times, you do get uh, your premiums. So they're uncorrelated to macro, and that's good news. The other paper I wanted to ask you about, and this is something as sector investors, you know, we tend to shy away from shorter term signals. I mean, you know, when we look at our factors, you know, most of our, we're holding our stocks. I mean, they're not based on short term signals. Um, it's like longer term investing when I think you're utilizing factors, but you wrote a paper beyond Fama, French factors, alpha and short term signals. Can you just talk about what you discovered in, in that paper and what your research found? Yeah. So. In this study, we show that uh, you can move beyond traditional factors. What we find interesting is that basically the short-term signals, which exist in academic studies, are dismissed based on implementation grounds. Like, yeah, you can make money with short-term reversal or others, but, you know, uh, high transaction costs, uh, implementation, uh, uh, shortfall, so maybe you just leave it. And we believe that if you do that, you leave alpha on the table. And the interesting thing with signals is that many investors cannot harvest them. Like index providers, smart betas cannot do it. Uh, they rebalance quarterly. Uh, it, it's impossible. So that's interesting always. If you see that some parts of the market cannot uh, uh, harvest premiums, you should become uh, alert and it might be an opportunity. What we show in the paper is that if you take a couple of proven signals, which are out there in the, uh, in the literature, you combine them uh, in a blend way, like we said, you should combine factors. We also find combining signals is very effective that you then get something uh, which, which gives you a good return. Um, and also uh, we show that simple implementation rules can help you to get also net return after transaction costs. So you can reduce your trading by a big amount. And then we, we prove that you can make alpha after trading costs based on these signals standalone. Yeah. And what we believe is that you should, as an investor, move beyond traditional factors, because if you don't do that, you leave alpha on the table. And this alpha is coming from those signals. And in this paper where we provide a simple framework based on existing variables, but you can imagine that if you take more sophisticated short-term signals, you do the trading more sophisticated, you can even get higher alpha. Um, and yeah, we believe that, uh, yeah, the next step for quant investing is also really going into this area. And also in a way, what we've seen that value momentum have become commoditized and people are moving beyond beyond those factors, which you, which you can easily get exposure to. And this is then basically the next uh, push. Uh, we're trying to push the frontier and also showing the market how it could be done, of course, without giving away too much uh, trade or 
IP details. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Can you talk about what the signals were at a high level? Because I read the paper, they were actually very interesting. Um, I think there were four or five major signals you looked at. Can you just talk about what they were? Yeah, so one of them is the classic uh, short-term reversal uh, from Jagadis, but then uh, more in a relative sense, because on the one month horizon, there's also style momentum and factor momentum. So these are, again, like the big value and the big momentum brothers and sisters. Uh, they're brother and sister. Uh, it's also on the short-term side. So short-term reversal marries really nicely with short-term momentum. So these, these are two main uh, ingredients. And then there's the fascinating stuff about the monthly seasonal. Uh, if a stock goes up in the past 10 years in December, then next December, this stock will probably go up again because it's December. Uh, that's, that's a very high turnover strategy, of course, because you have to, yeah, you have 1200% turnover a year. So these are, these are uh, for example, three examples uh, I can give. Blending them together, uh, you really uh, net out lots of uh, transaction costs and you improve your uh, alpha. Uh, by uh, combining them, yeah. And thinking about this for long-term factor investors like us is, is one of the ways we could potentially use this to think about using this like our entry and exit. So for instance, if we're about to sell a position, but all of these things are positive, we might want to wait. Or if we're about to buy, but all these are negative, we might want to wait as well. I and mean, is, that, is that a good way to think about this? Yeah, a way to do it. You can do it turnover neutral if you use it as a trading uh, uh, signal. Uh, suppose you wait, uh, so you want to sell something and then you look at the signals. And then when it's uh, uh, clear by, you wait with selling until the signal is also negative. So you can even use this to lower your trades. You can also use it in a way in which you do it trade neutral. So you trade as much. So some trades you speed up and sometimes some trades you slow down based on the signals. And then the third one is where you say, hey, I like those signals a lot. I give them some more weight where I make my strategy more active. These are three ways you can do it. So you can even use it to slow down your uh, traditional factor strategy by simply not selling something which is uh, screaming by on the signals. And that's also beautiful because then your trading costs are out of the equation. And then you got the pure uh, gross alpha you can uh, put on top of your uh, factor strategy. It's definitely interesting because, you know, when you think of, you know, the way most, I mean, many quantitative strategies just follow a rebalancing schedule, whether it's quarterly, semi-annually or annually. And, um, uh, you know, and so this is definitely, I could definitely see where the edge could come in with this type of, you know, adding the signals on top of a quant strategy to determine, you know, when you're getting in or getting out. And it's also like in talking to and we don't do any technical analysis here, but I mean, I've talked to thousands of investors over the years and, you know, a lot of times when what comes up with, with, you know, investors that have been investing in the market for a long time is, well, you have this quantitative score, but you're not looking at the chart. The chart looks terrible. And, you know, sort of some of the things that you're talking about would be reflected in, you know, price pattern type stuff that might, you might be able to eye it up like a, a trader that uses charts, you know, a lot of those things might be reflected in um, the, 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 price, the price performance, the chart of the stock. Yeah, true. So momentum is in between. So it's either some call it the style, other call it more uh, uh, a trade signal. Uh, sometimes momentum, which is clearly a way of uh, looking at charts. Eh? So when the momentum is weak, usually all the uh, chart indicators uh, correlate with momentum. So that's why in the formula, we, I chose that we include momentum 
because it's great to, to for trade timing basically yeah, to getting in and out um, if you take it to the next level so you say i already have momentum in then the signals are basically having the same function so again they can help you trade uh, uh, and also time time your trades uh, in the most uh, efficient way now when it comes to charge uh, yeah some of them uh, have academic uh, foundation like flame and, uh, and and momentum and you see that many others can be written down as different forms of classic momentum uh, so in that sense there is not an either or but it's more uh, an end end um, yeah one of the i guess knocks on taking academic research and trying to bring it to the real world in terms of investment strategies is usually academics are going building long short portfolios um and you know a lot of the excess performance with some strategies comes from the short side of the portfolio. I think like Piotrowski's that, you know, in his early 2000 paper, I, I believe a lot of that return was from, you know, the, sh the, the shorting stocks, um, not necessarily the long side, um, if I'm remem remembering correctly, but you wrote a paper, um, when equity factors drop their shorts. Um, what were your findings in that? By the way, I love that title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you see then? Eh? Uh, yeah, some factors uh, ex uh, yeah, look different than others because uh, some factors make lots of their uh, alpha from the shorts, which for most investors are not achievable. And also many of the conclusions uh, drawn by academics, whether some factors are better than others, are based on the long short assumption. What we find is that on the short side, many factors are highly correlated. So it's pretty easy to find a bad stock. You only have to look at bad momentum or high vol or junk or extremely expensive and it's basically not a good stock the funny thing is these metrics which i just mentioned are pretty much correlated so when something is extremely expensive it's often also risky and when it's risky it's often uh, a bad momentum and when it's bad momentum it's often uh, very bad quality yeah? and so it goes on and on and on what we find in this paper is that on the long side it's different the longs are much less correlated so when it's low vol it's usually sometimes cheap but also sometimes expensive so they're really truly diversifying on the long side the same goes with momentum it's truly diversification and what we find is that uh, the classic low vol and value factors are especially strong on the long side as well combined with others so in a long only context, we find that uh, low vol value momentum quality really blend in well and all contribute positively. And that's also how most investors invest in factors, long only using those factors. And that's contrast some of the academic findings. So that was pretty cool insight. And I got lots of positive reactions, especially from the industry, where they said, yeah, most academic studies are just assuming long short, while this is really much closer to what we're doing. And those insights are relevant. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think I think that's great because this is the way these factors are used most of the time. Um, so you, you want to look at it the way they're actually used. I'm wondering. I'm just curious. You know, if you look at the factors on their own, just individually, like which of the factors have the biggest return from the short side, like in the academic research? I'm just just curious if you looked at them. If, you, if there's a certain one that may have more return on the short side than lots of others. Yeah. So one factor strong in long long short is like quality, and in the long only setting, it becomes a bit less strong. That's one. The other one is momentum, which is also very strong on the on the short side. 
so more difficult to harvest. Uh, yeah. What are the current uh, new areas of research that you and your team are focused on? Is there anything uh, on the horizon that you're very interested in? I mean, this, this short-term signal implementing that an actual investment strategy seems like you think it's an opportunity, but where, where else are you guys focused? Yeah, so um, let me see. One is the trading and the implementation. So implementation is really key, especially when you manage uh, multi-billion strategies, which we do. Execution and using uh, optimal uh, trade signals and moving beyond traditional factors. That's full focus. Yeah, besides that, there is the, yeah, the galloping pace of innovation taking place on both uh, machine learning uh, using non-linearities and also uh, big and alternative data. So the search for alpha from other factors than traditional factors, one of them being ESG, so sustainability, can give really good insights in uh, higher alpha, but then not as a factor, but more as variables and more proprietary. When it comes to non-linear non patterns, um, the low vol strategies uh, can really be improved if you allow for non-linear factor combinations and variable combinations. And machine learning is really good suited to do this. So to give an example, leverage, usually high leverage is bad, uh, makes the stock very risky, but some leverage is not that bad, uh, just some, but beyond a certain point, it is really bad. Now with machine learning, you can really model those non-linear patterns in a much more uh, intuitive uh, and flexible way. And then we find, for example, a recent uh, output, which we also implement in our strategies, that with machine learning, you can better re uh, predict your downside risk of stocks by allowing for nonlinear uh, patterns. So that's fascinating. It's going very quick. We see new quants coming uh, at the market with different tools, different skill sets, and basically pushing uh, the frontier of, uh, of factor investing and moving it uh, to a higher level. And it all fits into the umbrella of quant investing. So systematic, academic, solid research. Uh, and yeah, trying to be uh, innovative uh, and really stay ahead because the competition is also uh, yeah, not sitting still and moving ahead as well. So that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's great. A lot of interesting sort of new exciting developments uh, on the horizon for, for, for your firm and many others, I'm sure. Um, we have a standard closing question we like to ask all of our um, guests, and that is based on the, 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 your research and experience in the markets, if you can impart one lesson um, to your average investor, what would that be? When it comes to long-term investment success, character is more important than uh, IQ. Character meaning sticking to your philosophy and not giving up uh, at the wrong moment giving up on value, you know, when value didn't go well and you miss out the rally. So character is more important uh, than IQ for long-term success. As having strong hands and stay committed to a strategy is not easy. Uh, one famous academic study, which is not uh, famous, a study I like a lot, which is maybe not, not famous enough, is dealing uh, with this, uh, about the difference between investor and investment returns. There's a big gap between that. That's 2% alpha on average, and it's increased over time. And that's purely due to adverse market and adverse style timing of investors. So they go in and out at the wrong moments. We all know the anecdotes of this, but there's a great study by DCF in the economic, uh, American Economic Review, lays this down and gives it a number 2%. And that's a lot of alpha 
if you just have your staying power, we call, I call it strong hands, where you stay committed in your, for example, quant strategy, but it can be any strategy. If you thought about it, execute right. And to do that, uh, you need more, it's more a test of character than of uh, intellectual quote. Uh, so that would be my important lesson uh, going from PhD and academics into practice and also translating uh, academic factors into real money for clients. That's great. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I knew I would, but I just, I, I love the focus on factors, risk, simplicity, long-term investing. Um, I mean, all, all, everything we've talked about, um, has been great. And we really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us and, um, the people that follow us. Um, if people want to learn more about you, follow you on Twitter, get access to your research, whether they're a professional or individual investor, where can they go to learn more? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Paradox Investor. So that's Paradox Investor. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can follow me there. These are my two main uh, outlets. I have a book uh, which is called High Returns from Low Risk. We have a website called paradoxinvesting.com where we provide data, long-term data, uh, tips for screens. Um, and also for the non-English listeners, the book is also available in uh, six other languages. So uh, yeah, it was my pleasure. Great. Thank you very much, Pim. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.